Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey everyone, welcome back to Latter Day Takes. Um, sorry for my absence last week. Um, you know, sometimes uh, you get distracted by things. Sometimes you have a down week. Uh, all that is true in my case, all is well. Um, but you know, I really just wasn't able to take the time to get things going. Uh, it's kind of what happens when it's not exactly a profession and that you're not really making money off of this, or at least a whole lot. Um, but uh, believe me, if this is my number one profession, I'd be all about it. You guys would never be forgotten about, and not that I forgot about you, but um, it would be probably my number one priority, uh, quite frankly. But anyway uh or at least top five probably shouldn't say number one let's be honest but anyway i um wanted to take a second and say i'm sorry i'm back um and i actually do have like a pretty good slate coming up of things of people i've talked to and setting up some certain topics and episodes and i think y'all like it um with that said i did get a post out on latter-day takes instagram that i actually thought was pretty good because one of the topics i want to cover at some point is these missionaries these gen z missionaries going out on tiktok and dancing all over manhattan or wherever and just honestly making fools of themselves i i can't explain it i'm sure it's sanctioned by their mission presidents i'm not going to question that necessarily i think it's bizarre that it is i don't know how many contacts they're getting through tiktok and i don't know tiktok either so whatever but I could be wrong. It's just a bad look. It looks very cheesy. It looks overwrought. It looks like this real bad desire to fit into the rest of the world in one of the worst ways possible, in, in my opinion. But like I said, I could be mistaken about that. Maybe I'm the curmudgeon get-off-my-lawn guy now, and that's definitely possible. That's probably why I started this podcast, let's be honest. Um, not a fan of those TikTok missionaries. Anyway, I posted something on that that I thought was pretty funny. If you want to see it, Go to at Latterday Takes on Instagram. Check it out. There's a few other memes out there. I'm not really a meme guy, but I'm learning, and I think I'm doing okay because that one was pretty. I, I, that was pretty funny if I do say so myself. Anyway, um, from there, did want to share a couple things. Like I said, had a tough week. Um, you know, still trying to figure things out. I was trying to be best version of myself possible, and some with that comes with setbacks. Um, without going into detail, one of my favorite things to do to help kind of bounce back is go to a talk right i like a lot of different talks out there I and mean, this might be something i'm going to do a little bit more often but my favorite talk maybe of all time and if not it's definitely a top five is from hubie brown and it's uh god is the gardener and there's things in there that he says that are just incredible and i am actually going to share an excerpt from his talk right now listening to hubie brown is like listening to an old-timey sermon from like a preacher back way back in the day i don't know how to explain it but just one of those guys that just the cadence is just like awesome hard to explain really beyond that without further ado i'll go ahead and share that clip and then i'll wrap things up in the intro here and get the episode going now some of you as you go forward are going to meet with disappointment perhaps many disappointments some of them crucial 
Sometimes you will wonder whether he has forgotten you. Sometimes you may even wonder if he lives and if he's where he's gone. But in these times when so many are saying God is dead, and where so many are denying his existence, I think I could not leave with you a better message than this. God is aware of you individually. He knows who you are and what you are. And furthermore, he knows what you are capable of becoming. Be not discouraged then if you do not get all the things you want just when you want them. Have the courage to go on and face your life and, if necessary, reverse it to bring it into harmony with his law. All right, that is just a tiny little excerpt from, I mean, I think that the whole talk is over 20 minutes. Um, Hubie Brown does an amazing job. And I would highly recommend anyone that, even if they're not going through any hard times or anything, pull that talk up. It's always a nice reminder. Just to give a little context, from there, Hubie Brown goes into a story about a current bush that was on a leftover farm that he had bought. And he had to kind of do some maintenance and yard work there. And talks about how he had to have these conversations with the living things on his farm and one of them was this current bush and what he had to do was he had to cut it down to what it once was like from what it was which had overgrown it had become problematic for the farm especially in its location and he's like i'm gonna have to cut you down current bush and the current bush is asking him like why are you doing that why are you cutting me down like i'm i'm doing what i'm supposed to do and that's grow and he's talking to the current bush and saying well I know I know exactly what needs to be done in order for you to fulfill your purpose here on this earth. And then he relates that to a story that he had in the military when he was overlooked um, for a position within the Canadian military to become general, which was something he had always aspired to do. And the only reason he was overlooked was because he was a member of the church. And he was he was devastated by it. And in that moment, his own words had come back to him that were, I'm cutting you down right now because I know exactly what you're fulfilling and calling is supposed to be on this earth, which obviously we know the end of there. Hubie Brown eventually became an apostle and a very, very great man and somebody very, very pivotal to our doctrine and is able to articulate it in ways that are very special specifically to me and I think a lot of us. So really, really cool story that he lays out there. Big fan of that one. Um, It's a nice reminder of kind of what our goals should be oriented towards and how we need to make and live our lives so it's circulating those goals so that god can call upon us when he needs us and that we can respond and that we won't be devastated by things that we think we deserve or need versus what god thinks we need so anyway with that today's is a little bit interesting i go into antichrists in the book of mormon kind of what the blueprint is there for the three that exist. And then I kind of relate that to modern day antichrists and where can we see that same thing. And it's just kind of more of a warning. Like these antichrists have always existed. Spoiler alert, these antichrists are not outside of the church. And I don't think they are in the Book of Mormon either. And I'll tell you why later on in the episode. And also from there, I bring on an old friend from BYU who wrote a letter to the Temple Department trying to appeal the idea of beards for Temple Ordinance workers. And the letter was really well done. And I I read it, and we talk about it. He comes on, and he's like, hey, let's talk about the idea of beards and how it's outdated and all that stuff. And so um, you have radical Mormons, and then you have not-so-radical Mormons like me and my friend Darren that comes on to talk about this because 
it's a it's a funny kind of ridiculous topic but hey uh, i'm here for it because i think long gone are the days of when beards meant anything wrong or negative and it's time to re-implement them or at least allow them once again to be in the temple for ordinance workers at byu for those schmucks down there and everything else i hope you enjoy that conversation of course with that being said i hope you all are ready to have a great week um it's monday so not everybody loves mondays but hey let's make this week better than the last love you all hope you're all doing well and i should be seeing you later this week mormons are my they're my favorite yeah they're absolutely my favorite all Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time. Beautiful, and these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. Just being a Mormon's nutty. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yeah. best cult. My favorite religion is Mormons. They're the nicest people. Shout out to the Latter-day Saint. Okay. So... I wanted to go over the specific antichrists that we see mentioned in the Book of Mormon. There are three that we can go off of specifically. They all have that title attributed to them, antichrist. You have Sherem, Nahor, I believe is how you pronounce it. I always thought it was Nahor, but I'm pretty sure it's Nahor. I may use that interchangeably, so just bear with me. And Korahor. Sherem took place in the book of Jacob last chapter it almost seemed like Jacob was ready to close up his book but then Sherem came around and he's like wait this is important let's talk about this so he gives the story about how Sherem came around which I'll get to here in a second Nahor and Korahor both were dealt with by Alma the Younger Nahor near the beginning of Alma the Younger's um I don't know what to say like calling as a prophet reign as a prophet or whatever but um and Korahor near the end um but both took place in the book of Alma Anyway, I wanted to kind of go over them as a blueprint, so to speak. Talk about like what it is that makes them an antichrist and maybe what they have in common, among other things. And so to do that, I kind of want to highlight specifically where each of them kind of a little bit of the background. Not a lot. Obviously, we don't have a ton to go off of on, on any of the three, really. But we do have some things here and there that can shed some interesting light on it. Starting with Sherem, like I said, he, he's at the end of Jacob, chapter 7. Kind of comes out of nowhere, um, but they do mention specifically that he came from among the Nephites. So my initial thought was, okay, so he's a Nephite, obviously. Does that mean he was a member of their church? And that alone doesn't really answer the question. Um, and I'll tell you why I actually think he was a member of the church in a second. But what Nahor believed was that in the scriptures um, was that people really don't know when the coming of Christ will be, so therefore they shouldn't say they do. Um, that they should really kind of just start living like they just like he's never going to come. It's kind of like this whole idea of uh, eat, sleep, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, because, you know, we don't know if Christ is ever coming. Stop saying we do. That's blasphemous. Like, that was literally his argument. Anyway, so... What I love here is that Jacob actually just straight up asks him, and he says, do you believe in the scriptures? And Sherem said yes. So that right there kind of answers the question to me that he probably was a member of the existing church at the time. Um, so he he likely was. He was a believer, su- supposedly, I guess. And um, But what Jacob's response was was what's amazing here. He says, then you do not understand them, which I think is kind of funny because... 
Something that my mom has said often is that the gospel is the best kept secret in the church today, which is a funny way of putting that. Basically, people don't understand the scriptures now, right? And that's what we're seeing more and more. We're seeing a lot of people out there on social media that are giving their best interpretation of the gospel. And guess what? Their interpretation is out of whack in a lot of ways because maybe they just don't know the scriptures that well. I don't know what it could be. I'm not saying that my interpretation is the best or even good for some people, but it's an interpretation that has certainly helped me. Therefore, that's why I put it out there for others to see and hear. Um, but I love that part from Jacob. He's like, well, you don't get it. Like, you clearly don't understand them. You're not really reading them. You're not being objective about your approach. Because what Sharon really did was he preached many things that were flattering unto the people. And this he did that he might overthrow the doctrine of Christ. So that was making him an antichrist, right? Anyway, so that was a little bit of Sharon. Now let's go into Nahor. There were three things that Nahor specifically emphasizes. What he does is he comes also from among the Nephites, and he wanted to say three things. Priests and teachers should be paid for, should be paid for their preaching and hold a privileged status. There will be universal salvation for all mankind. Same idea that Sharon had, which is basically doesn't matter what we do. I guess not really. I mean, it's a little different because Nahor said there will be salvation. doesn't matter what you do. Sharam said doesn't really matter what we do because there's, we just don't know. Um, but then Nahor also said, so there's no need for repentance. Um, he had a very, very far and wide reach to a lot of other Nephites. Lamanites don't care. They're not religious. It's kind of whatever to them. But what he did was he had a huge effect on already existing believers and members of the church in that time. And it contributed to a lot of dissenters on the Nephite side. You had the Am you had Amlici, who had actually dissented over to the Lamanites and created a huge war between the Lamanites and the Nephites that um, Alma even had to Alma the Younger had to even fight in himself. Ammonihah, we know that story. Um, they were the ones that burned their own people because they were basically trying to prove this point to Alma the Younger and Am Amulek that. Um, there is no God, or that it doesn't matter, they can do whatever they want. And so they started burning their own women and children. And so anyway, um, from there, he had also affected the Amulonites and the Zoramites. There were a lot of different sects of the Nephites that he had actually directly affected. And there's a reason for that. And the big reason is because he essentially tried to give an offshoot of the existing doctrine. And this doctrine was specifically... we. There should be some flattery given to those that are already leaders, right? It was very kind of this appealing approach and this tweak. There's no need for repentance, right? That's how that's appealing, right? Doesn't matter what you do. Um, there's going to be universal salvation for mankind, and that why not? Priests and teachers should be paid, right? Paid clergy, priestcraft, essentially. Um, and you could look at those things, and right now we can look at that and say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I can't believe you tried to pull that off. But back then, people, I guess, were saying, hey, this makes life a lot easier for us, doesn't it? So it was very appealing, and it really had a damning effect on a lot of different groups among the Nephites. That leads me to the last Antichrist we have listed in the Book of Mormon, who is Korihor, who kind of seems like the quintessential Antichrist, because he literally came out and just said, there will be no Christ. Sherem kind of said the same thing, but he was more kind of out of like, we don't know, so therefore it doesn't matter. But... Korahor was very direct. He actually said there will be no Christ. Um, and we know later that that was because the, essentially the devil appeared to him in the form of an angel saying that there is no Christ, which was ironic because the devil appearing in the form of an angel, who did he think this angel came from? Anyway, a lot of contradictions there. That's how evil and the devil works. 
There's a lot of things that are inexplicable. But Korahor was relatively ineffective compared to Nahor because he kind of was outside of the existing doctrine. That's why I think actually Sherem and Nahor were members of the church. It's possible Korahor was, but I don't think we have a lot to go off of there. He was more trying to change the system from the outside. And um, that's something that I've kind of talked about before. But what we do know, all three are antichrists, right? They had very different approaches in their dogma. Nahor and Sherem, like I said, were... They, I really do think they were members of the existing church at the time. They both, like, Sherem came from among the Nephites. He believed the scriptures. Similar idea for Nahor. We don't know specifically that he came from among the Nephites or that he believed in the scriptures, per se. I mean, we can assume he came from the Nephites, at least. Um... But it does talk about how he wants to change the way clergy is treated for the church. And I don't think you generally find somebody that wanted to do that if they weren't already a part of the church, right? That doesn't mean anything for sure, but it does kind of beg that question. Like, why would he care about changing a church he wasn't even a part of? Or was he looking to maybe latch on to something and he was an opportunist and he thought, I'm not a part of this church, but man, if I could change it just here and there, I'd like to be. I doubt that because I don't think he'd be really convincing to others because people might see that and say, this guy's just trying to get a quick buck. Whereas if he had been a part of it, he could maybe say, listen, I get it. I've been around. I know the system and it's wrong and this is how you can fix it, right? Um, so essentially you had Sherem and Nahor who wanted to change principles of the existing doctrine. And they're not really trying to add doctrine. They're just tweaking it here and there. Um, and that reminds me, right, when I mentioned kind of changing the system from within or from the outside. On a previous episode, I think it was back in episode 40, and I think I talked about it a little bit in 41 as well, um, there's this idea of Mormon radicals that I'm throwing out there, right? Saul Alinsky wrote the book Rules for Radicals, and now he was talking about that from a, from a political standpoint. How do you change a system from within? He was, a, he was a Marxist, and he wanted socialism to kind of take over. And he's like, well, how do we implement socialism in a capitalist society. Well, you have to be a part of the capitalist society and then tweak it from there, which you see a lot nowadays too. I think the same rules apply to the church. I think you have a lot of people in the church that want to change the church, not so much from the outside, because people on the outside don't really care that much, I don't think. They're not really a part of it. So this idea that Mormon radicals, are they a part of it or are they outside of it? That's why I think Sharon and Nahor were actually a part of it, because I think they were thinking we can change the system from within. And... um from there, I think you can actually apply the same idea to modern day. I think we actually have a lot of antichrists, so to speak, that are out there on social media that exist in the church. And that may sound like a crazy, bold statement, but I don't think it really is. I think it should be kind of obvious to a lot of us. I don't think you have a lot of people outside of the church that are, can be considered from from this blueprint that I'm going off of as antichrists, or at least some that affect the church directly. The church is too big for any just random antichrist to come along and say there is no Christ. We don't care, right? We're over 15 million strong. But it becomes problematic when we have our own members embracing the same philosophy that we can change the doctrine from within. You know, maybe we don't need a prophet to give us that revelation. We can just have our own revelation because we know more or whatever. So going off of those lines, I think these modern-day antichrists, so to speak, tend to be overzealous. It's as if they want to be the first to the well so they can put their spiritual prowess on display for everyone to see. They want to be able to just showcase 
what they know and who they are. It's like they're going more for popularity than anything else. It's kind of that idea that Nahor had, which was like, we should they, these people should be heralded, right? They should be paid. They should be noticed. They should be able to wear costly apparel, things like that. If it's just about making the church more progressive, I think we're kind of missing the mark a little bit. I, I don't look at somebody like Kate Kelly and think her goal really was to just ordain women and then take a seat and that was it. I think her goal was probably to ordain women as well as be the head woman in the church, right? And then make the church even more progressive than it had been. I don't think, I don't think she was done at just ordaining women. She was looking for a lot of accolades behind that. She was looking for popularity. I don't think she was going to stop until she became that woman or got what she needed in that regard. That was a f sense of fulfillment, whatever that may have been, or that until she was excommunicated. And obviously, we saw the latter take place. I think you see a lot of people like that on Twitter now, personally. I mean, all social media platforms, but Twitter just seems to be kind of the, like, really, it's it's Satan's neighborhood. I mean, it's a, it is just a hellhole. Um, and I say that as somebody that's on it, so it's like, why am I on it? I get it, whatever. Um, maybe that's a little contradictory, but it can be really bad at times. You have people like Calvin Burke out there um, running his mouth, sharing his philosophy. And, and you have some similarities with what Calvin Burke talks about um, and how he wants to go about changing the doctrine on his own, right? Obviously, he's a very... LG, strong LGBTQ, not just um, ally, he, he is a part of that group. I believe he's a student at BYU. And he talks very openly about wanting to change the church and making it more progressive. He says things, I mean, these are just taken from his own Twitter. He says, I honestly, I really hope women gain the ability to be ordained but to the priesthood soon. There's just no justifiable reason against it, scriptural or otherwise. If it does happen sooner, I hope we remember that white supremacy is more stubborn than patriarchy, and it won't be in the end of progress. Um, and he even says there's a strong argument to be made that Joseph Smith, in fact, did ordain women with priesthood power and authority back in the early days of the church. It's a tragedy we dismantled so much of the incredible autonomy and power women were granted in the church in earlier days. He says there's a strong argument to be made, but doesn't give it. He doesn't show it. He doesn't give any details on that. He just throws it out there. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying he's wrong, but at least if you're going to try and make that point, like make the point, like give it some credence, but I don't know. Um, I guess you can't expect them to uh, play to a certain standard, I guess. But what's funny about that is that actually um, nowhere in our doctrine does it say that only men can hold the priesthood or that men should hold the priesthood. So technically speaking, that could happen. Um, I'm just at a loss for what the point is of trying to be on those front lines. And I think it extends more beyond the idea that they simply want women to hold it. I think they just want to be right. They want to be progressive. They want to have the bullet point on their resume that says, I was the one that helped further that change in the church. And if that's the case, and it does even come as a change, um, I think it's important for everybody involved in that to ask themselves, why? Why did they want to be the person, for better or for worse. I'm not saying necessarily that makes them a bad person, obviously. I'm just saying there does need to be some introspection as to what is driving you here as a person. Is it pride? Is it hubris? Is it overzealousness? Or is it value? Like, is it truly this pure, 
desire to just want to spread whatever it is that you think needs to be spread. I don't even know because I don't think you can necessarily say the with the priesthood comes these major blessings as a priesthood holder. There is no difference in the blessings that a priesthood holder gets versus a non-priesthood holder. Um, the ability to act in Christ's name is obviously the difference there. But anyway, I think I'm being tangential here. But the whole idea, the whole point that I'm really trying to make more than anything is that these progressives, I'm not sure what their motivation is, but it does seem to kind of fall in line roughly with the same progressives that we saw in the Book of Mormon. Um, something else of note, there's another Twitter handle out there. From a, it's a former bishop, and that's something he touts quite a bit. And he's very, very popular on Twitter. I'm not going to give his name, but um, it's very interesting to see because he's he's very progressive with the LGBT movement, saying it's basically his goal to um, find understanding and love between members of the church and the LGBTQ community. That in and of itself is, I, I get that, it's great. Um, I think that's, that's a, like I said, that in and of itself is a righteous cause but i can't help but think there's a little bit more to it here um and what's interesting is that this same former bishop on twitter likes to put things out there that uh can seem a little bit questionable in my mind one of which is he says don't question people's personal revelation or he says judge he says Let's don't let's don't judge others' personal revelation. Seems like it's called personal revelation for a reason, and is a core principle of the gospel. There, there's a lot of nuance behind that, and I think it's funny that he's just throwing that out there, where it's like these people get personal revelation. But what does he even mean by that? Like, if somebody gets personal revelation that somebody else is being a bad person or is in the wrong, uh, then yeah, I think we have the right to question that or judge that. Personal revelation is personal, so as long as they're not touting it and spreading it, then sure, like leave it to them, they can do what they will with it. But as long as it starts affecting another person, if they're not the prophet, if they're not a prophet in the church, then yeah, I think we can kind of put that to the test and say, what do you mean you got this personal revelation that that we are able to now smoke marijuana as members of the church, or that you are specifically. I mean, you can't just say that's no holds barred, and I think that's pretty irresponsible, especially from a former bishop, but no surprise there, right? There's a lot of, I'll just say it, there's a lot of jackass bishops out there. There are, which is unfortunate, but it's the case. And we have a lot of leaders in our church that are not nice people. Uh, They're going to be extremely imperfect, and it's unfortunate and it is what it is, but that does not take away from the idea that the prophet is a man of God and he is led by God. So at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Anyway, just wanted to kind of go over that, highlight some of that, and talk about the idea that there are antichrists among us. And when Hank Smith referred to Calvin Burke as Korahor, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see where he's coming from. Korahor is a little off the mark there because I think Korahor was actually outside of the church or we have no indication that he was in the church. But Nahor, that one that one seems to fit pretty well, actually. I think he's radical. I think he's not radical in, like, the surf, like, 90 cents. I mean, I think he's a radical Mormon. And in that, I think his days are numbered in the church, but far be it for me to know for sure i think he's actually even tweeted about that he said it's just going to run its course eventually so i don't know what he's waiting for but whatever good for him i guess if it brings him some sort of fulfillment 
All right, with that, I did want to kind of introduce somebody else into this podcast because this is a movement I can get behind personally, and it's interesting. It's uh, it's actually not that interesting. It's kind of juvenile, but it's funny, and I really do think it's ridiculous that this has not been transformed within the church uh, and within BYU, and that is facial hair. Uh, students still can't rock the facial hair. Professors can't rock the facial hair. Um right beards can't be you can't be a temple ordinance worker and which is actually the genesis of my next my my guest here coming on today to talk about why there can't be beards in the temple and he did some pretty extensive research and it was pretty impressive of what the kind of history and the background is there and he shares a talk from elder oaks president oaks i should say and at the time he was president of byu talking about why beards are not allowed at byu which then goes to furthermore point out that actually maybe we should bring beards back because if it was a policy of its time, then it's probably time to reverse it. Anyway, like I said, this isn't anything that is like a hill worth dying on per se. It's more funny than anything. And I know I talk about this like, hey, like who are these progressive members of the church? Who do they think they are thinking they can change policy? Um, and here's one right here, me and my buddy Darren that comes on. And we're going to talk about it. I hope it's somewhat enjoyable. If you feel like this is something you can get behind, reach out, and we'll uh, we'll tell you where to go from there. You can send a letter to the right place, the temple department, and maybe eventually we'll be able to wear, uh, carry beards as uh, temple ordinance workers or students at BYU will be able to rock beards as well. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Okay, joining us today, we have an old friend of mine from the BYU days. We were in the same ward together back, I don't know, this would have been like 2013, 2014, maybe, something like that, 2015, maybe, uh, right before I moved to Texas. Uh, Darren Clift, uh, a friend of mine who now lives in Mesa, right? No, Phoenix. Phoenix. Specifically Phoenix. I do not live in Mesa, no. Distinct different from what I understand. Yes. Difference. But um, the reason why I brought Darren on today is because he wrote one of the most impressive and extensive, I guess the letter itself isn't, isn't the most extensive, but the background research you did to write this letter to specifically the temple department of the church, appealing to them to maybe consider letting endowed members of the church, temple workers specifically, have beards as temple workers, ordinance workers, which I think is kind of hilarious, but also at the same time, like I 100% get behind it. In fact, I think this is something I've talked about before. The honor code BYU, the whole no beard thing is so extremely outdated. So I wanted to talk to you about this and you were talking about the process that went into writing this. I mean, you sent me, you sent me the background, which is an impressive, like seven pages of like very like specific research about kind of church culture standard, like background. And also you're given other points about like why it would be necessary and important to allow this. But then you condensed it all into one letter because it, you had said that your, your sister and brother-in-law or. Yeah. My, wife. yeah. So my brother and his wife, they, they looked at it they looked at the long paper like you should totally save this for your posterity Darren but we got to write you know we got to cut this down to one page like just imagine you got you got uh you know old older general authorities they've been in this for a while and imagine them just getting this super long paper you should just cut it to one page I'm like all right fair <laughs> enough 
I think that was probably pretty good advice. With that yeah. said, it doesn't make it any less impressive. And it did give you kind of the chops to really, really give it uh, a well-stated and efficient letter to the Temple Department. One thing specifically you point out that is that is the thing that stands out to me the most. It's, I can't, like, maybe, maybe it's not going to be until President Oaks becomes the prophet, which I actually do think will happen personally. I mean, he's 89, something 80, maybe 90. I think he's still 89, though. Uh, President Nelson's 96, I believe now. I want to say President Nelson's 97. 97 even. Yeah. So there's a big enough gap there where, I mean, President Nelson doesn't show any signs of, of leaving us anytime soon. But if it, at that age, it's kind of a crapshoot, right? You never know. Yeah, you so never know. I think I think Elks will take over at some point, which will be interesting from a political standpoint, just for the record. But anyway, outside of that, you have a quote here from him that is incredibly... Uh, like the context is so amazing to what you're trying to prove here. And I can't believe this quote alone didn't make them like actually look into this and think there might be something here. I'll go ahead and read it and I'll let you kind of expand on that. Uh, President Oaks stated, this is your writing. President Oaks stated the following principle when addressing BYU students in 1971 about the newly adopted grooming standards. And it says, this is Oaks quote, our rules against beards and long hair are contemporary and pragmatic. They are responsive to conditions and attitudes in our own society at this particular point in time, 1971. Means a lot. Hippies, right? Hippie movement, all yep. that stuff. The rules are subject to change, and I would be surprised if they were not changed at some time in the future, but the rules are with us now, and it is therefore important to understand the reasoning behind them. And that came from a talk that you cited, Talk of the Month, Standards of Dress and Grooming, which, was he the president of BYU at the time? Yeah, he was. Is that what that was? And that was an address from the president. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes contextually, it makes the most sense. But tell me about it. How'd you how'd you find that quote for one? And another, what were your thoughts kind of leading into that? Yeah, so I think, I don't know if I just was trying to look it up or if I had heard about it and then looked it up on the internet. Um, I mean, you could you could find the talk on YouTube. I'm, I think it's, you could see the video. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I listened to it and then read it. And I mean, it made sense. It, like you, you read my entire research paper, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. that I wrote, right? So, yeah. so you understand all the the background. But which let me let me comment on that real quick because that is something I wanted to say is that you really you did address that you did address how for its time it made sense because men that like had beards were really trying to, they were trying to make a statement more than anything. They were yeah. saying like we're going against the system, right? We like don't want to belly a symbol. Exactly. And that, that does make a lot more sense mm-hmm. to then say, well, okay, let's not be a part of that, right? Rebellion, right? We, we believe that there is something to decorum when it comes to being in a work setting or a church setting and things like that. Yeah. And, and something that's interesting is culturally, it, what, one of the things that I found in this, you know, when doing a lot of my research, the military actually has a huge impact on uh, kind of grooming standards for men and so you know world world war ii and all you know all the other arm arm guys that are in the armed forces serving they they were clean shaven right for most of i'd say 20th century so growing a beard uh, that was basically a rebellious symbol because these guys didn't want to get drafted right it's the whole hippie movement so it's all Vietnam era all that. Yep, yeah. exactly. It's it's around that time. So it's all kind of connected. So it, you know, it makes sense why 
you know, the, the church and by extension BYU, why they wouldn't want their young men to be associated with that. Like it makes, makes perfect sense. But then you look at kind of the military now, you know, with all these different um, wars that are happening in the Middle East, most of like basically all the guys that are in the armed forces, all the men that are serving, they almost have to grow beards. A lot of them have to grow beards just because if they're trying to, um, you know, basically make a better connection and try to work with some of the locals in those villages, like guys are going to get more respect if they have beards. And so, you know, you look at kind of now just the society as a whole, I think, you know, 30 years ago in business, you wouldn't see CEOs or, you know, other businessmen having beards. They were, they were all clean shaven, but now it's a little different. I used Has to anyone seen Jack Dorsey recently? My goodness. Yeah. Um, I, and I used to work at Goldman Sachs. And at the time when I was working there, Lloyd Blankfein was the CEO. He had, you know, well-trimmed uh, beard. And so, um, so that, that to me is just kind of an example of sort of where society is now when it comes to men and facial hair. Um, and so at least me personally, it's, I like having a beard. Um, it's not crazy. You know, I like it well-trimmed. It's, it's good, but it makes me look a lot more older. You know, it makes me look a little bit more mature. I mean, Harper, you know, you knew, <laughs> you knew what I looked like before the beard at BYU. You know, I looked like I was barely graduated from high school. That's, that's just how young <laughs> I look. And so having yeah. a beard, it, uh, it's just, much better for me. And I think people take me a little bit more seriously. So, so that's, that's kind of why I wanted to, you know, try to, I, I wanted to serve in the temple as an ordinance worker, but, you know, I also wanted to, you know, at least just kind of make my voice heard. I, I want to say initially, I can neither confirm nor deny that you looked like you were still in high school at some points <laughs> while we were at BYU together. But I can confirm it. I know you're looking for that. You're not wrong. Uh, you had it. You, I mean, you still have a pretty young look, which is going to benefit you long term, by the yeah. way. But right now, I see, like, no joke, man. You're looking great. You got this. Thanks, you got a well trimmed beard, and you're doing well for yourself. Clearly, very established. I'm, uh, I'm impressed. Quite Thank frankly, you. I appreciate um, it. But yeah, so talking about kind of the 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 times of society and how that's ever changing. Like, why do you think the church and BYU are still holding on to it now? I think it's just easier to not deal with it. That's my honest opinion. Like well, like, but I don't know. Well, what would be so hard about just saying, I like, guess what, we're allowing beards now? Are they scared that like things will get out of control? I'm not sure how you get out of control like in that regard. Yeah, I like it's definitely easier for them to just say, okay, at least this is talking BYU, and then we can talk about the Temple Peace. I think for for BYU, it's easier to just say, all right, let's just guys, you got to be clean shaven, like they they don't have to deal with with anything and oh we'll we'll let you wear a mustache if if you want so it kind of gives you know some guys now but it, that's almost worse in my opinion i think i think most guys probably look a little bit more creepy with a mustache than, uh, than without it um and guys look less creepy if they're gonna have facial hair they they better have the whole thing instead of just a mustache they're just gonna look better and they're not gonna look as creepy um, but, but yeah, so I, I think that's kind of my opinion on that. It's just easier for them to say, guys, just, you know, be clean shaven. Uh, they don't have to deal with any situation where like there's, cause let's be honest, there, there are going to be some guys who they will 
probably grow it out like crazy and mm -hmm. you know they're gonna have Look to deal with guys man. yep they're gonna have to deal with guys doing the you know no shave november you know or no yeah. shave november whatever they call it um and like i think they they just they're still into that you know clean cut look and that like that's kind of the most pure thing i think that's just that's just how they see it um i think from a temple standpoint um it may depend on the temple but i'm pretty sure it's it's uh church-wide that you know guys have to be clean shaven if they want to be an ordinance worker in the temple you know, like, well i'm pretty sure it's a fairly established at least unwritten rule i don't i don't mm -hmm. know if it's actually written down somewhere but that leaders like in bishop bishoprics i believe without with few exceptions are also supposed to not have facial hair yeah that's that's an interesting one one of the wards that i served or not served in sorry one of the wards that i attended when i was in salt lake i was in the avenues and I think the first bishopric that was there when I was attending that ward, uh, one of the counselors, he, he had kind of facial hair like me. It was well-trimmed. It was, you know, kind of clean cut, I guess, but it, he still had facial hair. No issues, you know, there. Um, I think one of the other bishopric members, kind of the same thing. So it, it, it sort of depends, but that's a young single adult ward. That's a little bit different than, I think, a family ward. You go to a family ward, it's almost like, they just expect you to do it, but I, I can tell you this much: if not that I would seek out that kind of opportunity to serve in a bishopric, but if that were to happen, you know, I and I get called to serve, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not yeah. gonna shave. <laughs> I'm, I'm just well, not gonna do it. <laughs> I can't remember where I heard this, but there was that somebody had said like uh, there was a bishop that just flat out refused. Like yeah. the stake president was like, "I'm gonna need you to shave," and he's like, "I'm not. Sorry." <laughs> like, yeah. That was that, and I think the stake president was like. All right. <laughs> Good. Then I and guess that, not. And that's right. and that's how things get changed, you know. And you know, right in the letter, like just some background on how I even like got the connections to know where to send this letter to. There's there's a friend of mine who she she works like at the church office building, um, and so I was like that partic that summer I was getting ready to. Uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, I, sh I should become temple ordinance worker. And so, you know, I was getting ready to do it, talking to bishop and stake president about that. And I knew that I would have to shave, you know, each each time that I go in to serve, that was okay. But, you know, I at least was like, you know, let's just see if I could, let's just, let's just see what happens if I send some kind of letter in. And so I talked to this friend, found out where I needed to send a letter to, uh, you know, went through a few different revisions. We got it to what it is now. And the response, they actually came back pretty quickly. I was, I was impressed with how quick they came back with the response. Um, but yeah, I was less than enthused about basically their response. Um, but well, it might I, be, a, it might've been a canned message is the unfortunate aspect. Yeah. It, it came it, back so quickly. It may have been. Um, but the good thing is, is when people, you know, I think when, people have like actual genuine inquiries about things. You'd be surprised of what kind of changes can happen. Cause before I wrote this, I was talking to talking to the contact at the, at the church uh, office building. And she had said that, what was it? She had said that like the policy to allow 
um, the youth to actually clean the baptistries at the, you know, at the different temples. That didn't used to be the case. You had to be an endowed member of the church to be able to go and clean any part of the temple. Mm. Well, there's enough youth who are saying, Hey, you know, we want to serve and clean in the temple as well. Can we clean the baptistry? Cause that's where we're allowed to go anyway. And so that was kind of one of those things where there's enough traction, enough people writing about it, enough people inquiring about it that they considered and decided to make a change. And when I brought up the whole thing about the beards to her, she said, you know, we have been getting more inquiries about it. Not a ton, but we have been getting more inquiries about it. So you should write a letter. And so she was very encouraging, actually, to, to submit a letter to the temple department. Or maybe a better approach would be that we start a movement that a fully clean shaven face is now a form of rebellion. <laughs> there we go. That yeah, let's let's do it. Let's see what happens. You, <laughs> you could be the first one. Idea. I'll let yeah. you be the leader of it, and then you can shave, Harper. Yeah, exactly. I'll, but shaving every day does suck. With that said, I never actually had issues with it because I know some guys like it aggravates their skin quite a bit. And yep. fortunately for me, that's never been an issue. I just don't like doing it. I'm just too lazy to do that every day. But um, I actually don't even grow the most impressive beard. I do. <laughs> this is gonna make me sound like a creep. I do like rocking the mustache from time to time. Okay, though, I will say. But, you know, um, some people can pull it off. Like, there's there's a guy that, I don't know if you knew him, but there's a guy from our ward back in BYU who, he had a mustache, and he looked good in it. Like, Yeah, I, I remember him, actually. Yes. And it was, he, it was a big part of who he was, I remember, and it was just made sense. I agree. Yeah, I mean, he, but the guy, I thought the guy actually pulled off the mustache pretty well, so some people could do it. Some people can, for sure. I'm not even sure if I'm one of those people. I just like doing it. It's a form there of rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we close out here, do you have a timeline of prediction here where you think that things like they might let up at all? I know that's kind of an arbitrary even question to ask. So I don't like, I'm not putting any weight into this. I'm just curious. You know, uh, the way I look at it is when things kind of change about stuff, something like this, it's, whoever's like about our age that has the same feelings about it, like, Oh, this is a stupid rule. They should, you know, why are we worrying about this? Once they get into those positions of, you know, being a general authority, you know, being a, a member of the quorum of the 12 or the 70, any of these general authorities, like once they get in those positions, that's when I think you'll see more of these smaller type of changes just because they're willing to like do something about it. I think, one good trait about our generation is that I think in general, we like transparency a lot of times. And so if something's not clear as to why there's a policy or practice, then the question is, well, why are we keeping it? And so then they're going to be willing to make those kind of changes. So yeah. that's, that's what I think it would take because otherwise they just got other things that they're worrying about. They don't care about beards. Like it's just easier for them to not address it. Just kind yeah. of like you said, the whole can response, if that's indeed what it was that I got from the temple department, like it's just easier for them to kind of brush it aside right now. For sure. All right, Darren. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time, man. Is uh, Seriously, I wish I wish I had like a place I could post all the background research you did and the letter you wrote and everything. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I technically do, but yeah. I don't I don't know if that would do any good. And obviously I wouldn't do that without your permission, but. Um, if you're ever looking to maybe push something out there, I do have a website that does not get a lot of traction because I yeah. don't update it regularly, but I'm open to pushing something out there. Like if it ever becomes more of a thing, that can be somewhat of a uh, home base for you if you need it. 
yeah, we'll uh, you know we'll keep that arrow in the quiver, and you know when we need it, then we'll pull it out. Sounds great, man. Well, thanks again, and uh, best of luck to you out in Phoenix. And uh, uh, I don't know. Good luck with the movement, and I'm I'm right there behind you every step of the way. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Let's uh, let's make changes, right? So thank you, Harper. It was good talking to you. Good catching up. And, yeah. Hopefully, good changes. Of course. Likewise, brother. Takes time, I, I, if it takes time.